A legal practice, by its very nature, is privy to sensitive and confidential information and the transfer of large sums of money. Cybercriminals know this, and it makes solicitors targets. In this program, Alyssa Baxter, General Counsel at Law Cover, and Keith Bethlehem, partner at Colin Biggers and Paisley, discuss recent cyber claims against solicitors, why and how solicitors have become targets, and what can be done to secure your legal practice against cyber risk. I'm joined today by Keith Bethlehem from Colin Biggers and Paisley, who provides the emergency assistance and support for the cyber insurance policy that Law Cover purchased on behalf of its insured law practices. And Keith is going to share with us some of his expertise in cyber claims, particularly the claims that have been brought against solicitors in the last 18 months since we've had the policy. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a very interesting ride over the last 18 months. We have certainly learnt together with the profession The trajectory of claims is going in the correct direction. We've seen claims tail off over certainly the last three to six months. That does not mean that the risk is no longer there. Certainly, we think that the reasons the claims have tailed off is because of good risk awareness within the profession. And hopefully, our listeners today will be part of that ongoing solution. Excellent. That's good. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about how we've managed to make claims tail off, but let's just start by talking about the types of claims that professional services firms, particularly solicitors, are seeing. So how do you get attacked? More than half of the claims that are reported to us on the 1800 breach line are as a result of what is colloquially called social engineering, We prefer to call it BEC or business email compromise. The claims arise because the hackers somehow, and we'll talk about how they get that access, but get access either to the email of the law practice or the email accounts of clients and send emails to the law practice or from the law practice to other law practices, suggesting, for example, the most common incident is that uh, a party has changed its bank account details shortly before transfer of funds after a property settlement or perhaps once uh, an estate is about to be paid out. Um, And if a law practice acts on those instructions, funds get transferred to the fraudsters, the hackers' accounts, and often that money cannot be recovered. The other common incidents that we have reported to us are instances of ransomware, and that's the very unfortunate situation where you log onto a computer, often Monday morning, they seem to happen more often over the weekends, and there is a message saying that the system is frozen, and unless you make a payment, usually a hefty payment, and usually required to be made in Bitcoin, the system will remain locked. So what do you do if you get into your practice on a Monday morning and there up comes this thing saying you have to pay me a Bitcoin, um, what, do you, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? The first thing we recommend you do is call us. Call the cyber response line that has been set up by the group insurer. Very easy number to remember, 1-800-BREACH. And we, that's for all law cover insureds. Anyone for, who's got a policy with us indeed. is covered. Uh, on receipt of those calls... We triage the claim. The first issue that we will discuss with you is whether there is cover under the policy. That is ordinarily an instantaneous decision. 
and certainly in instances where the law practice has opened up their network and there is a message from hackers saying that ransomware has affected the system, uh, there will be cover available. We will then engage the panel IT security experts who will um, remote into the computer or, if necessary, visit um, the law practices offices uh, to provide technical assistance. Certainly, we also recognise that law practices have their own relationships with their own preferred uh, IT providers. The IT providers can be a very important link between the law practice and the panel security experts. Quite often, we encourage the communications to be between the law practices, IT, trusted own IT security experts who also understand the architecture of their system and our panel experts who have a tremendous amount of experience in dealing with ransomware. And so can, are you able to technically fix a ransomware attack? Usually, yes. And the answer to that question depends on the adequacy of backups. Right. In the vast majority of cases where we have, where the policy has responded to ransomware, the IT security consultants are able to effectively image the system as it was just before the ransomware attack and restore it to that state. But that depends on the law practice having the backups. So if you've got a good backup, you've basically got a picture of what your system looked like on Friday, you come in on Monday, it's locked, we can just go back to Friday. Absolutely right. The problem is if your backups are inadequate, there is a real difficulty and that has led to some of the most difficult claims on the policy, which includes us having to deal with the hackers themselves and in rare instances there have been occasions where with and after notification to law enforcement agencies, we've dealt with the hackers. How do you deal with hackers? It's an interesting process and there are different kinds of hackers out there. There are ways in which we, through the IT security consultants that the insurers engage, can verify that the hackers are, in colloquial terms, a going concern. So I recall... Um, a case where we had a firm in regional New South Wales who were struck by ransomware. Unfortunately, the last readable backup was three or four years old. Oh, dear. They had been diligently backing up to a corrupted server. Uh, but because they didn't have a need to rely on backups previously, they hadn't established that their backups were corrupt. Because they never went back and looked at at their backups. Yeah. Okay, and and right. therein lies okay. a lesson which I'm sure everybody can appreciate. What we did was to get our IT security consultants to run a check on the um, cyber wallet within the Bitcoin ledger. Bitcoin is an open ledger. You can see the, the, the wallet effectively of all other Bitcoin users. There was a ransom demand which was a reasonable demand about how much in dollars? Um, at that stage, it was uh, around 5,000 Australian dollars. 
So that's not an awful lot of money. No, it's not. And there does seem to be different tactics used by hackers. We've had some completely unreasonable demands uh, where the hackers were seeking hundreds of thousands of dollars, Uh, whereas there is um, this instance and many other instances where the hackers have put out a reasonable demand in expectation that it is accessible to the victim and will be paid. Mm-hmm. Once the IT security consultants had viewed the wallet, they established that, to use the words I used a little earlier on, it was a going concern. The ransom demand had been 0.35 Bitcoin and we could see multiple tens of transactions at 03 so you know they're criminals. Why would we negotiate with criminals? The options available at that stage for the law practice were really limited. The ransomware had infected their entire system, including their trust account, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, if we just focus on the trust account, without a trust account, the firm which had a predominantly property and estates practice would have been required to cease operations until the trust account could be rebuilt. How long would that take? We had various uh, estimates undertaken by a forensic accountant to rebuild from a combination of hard copy files and bank statements, and it looked to be between 10 and 15 working days. That was also estimated um, to cost around $100,000. Okay, so the law firm's out of operation for three weeks and it's going to cost $100,000 as opposed to the alternative solution, which is to pay money to criminals. It's a, it's actually not an easy decision to no, make. it's not, and it's very much a last resort for the insurer. And as I said earlier on, the steps are only taken, firstly, once we've exhausted yep. all other technical, all other feasible uh, technical solutions. But we also ensure that reports are made to ACORN, which is the federal police's reporting institution for cybercrime. And we have had follow-ups from ACORN from time to time, which are investigated by the uh, federal police. Okay. So on that occasion, you... Um had to pay the hack. How do you know you're not going to pay the hackers money and then they run away and you never see them again? A, a huge risk. Uh, part of the solution is is their trading data. The other solution is to provide test files. So the IT security consultants. This is like prov- proof of life. Absolutely. Right. Uh, provide test files to the hackers. The hackers return those test files. Now, the hackers are generally quite sophisticated. So if, for example, um, a file is provided uh, which would enable you to rebuild the entire system, the hackers will probably be aware of that. It is genuinely a uh, a file is selected uh, which is fairly benign in the context of um, uh, the law practices um files so that both to protect the law practice but also uh, to ensure that the hackers um, are not dissuaded from dealing with you Mm -hmm. at an arm's length basis. In that case, the hackers were 
cooperative, technically very astute, provided the keys within a couple of hours, the IT security consultants together with the law practice's own uh, IT providers were able to rebuild the system in a, in a couple of hours. So that had a, a happy ending, that story, because uh, uh, the system was a back up and running that day. A very happy story. Mm. Uh, uh, as happy as, as it could be in the context of a law of practice being hacked. But yes, sure. a, a good solution. Now, that's not always our experience. We've had experience with a hacker where the same protocols were run through. The test files came back, decrypted, the keys were provided, but unfortunately the keys were only effective in four of six servers that had been infected by the ransomware and a lot of key information was on the two servers that couldn't be decrypted. An interesting comment on that in, on that incident is that we considered that it wasn't through a lack of cooperation from the hackers on that occasion. They just didn't understand the beast that they had un unleashed. They had purchased it probably on the dark web somewhere and they'd implemented it in a way that didn't enable the keys to decode it. Whereas in the first instance, we had an email after the keys had been provided from the hackers saying, we'll be around for another 24 hours if you have any questions. Okay, good after-sale service. So when you say um, the ransomware was purchased on the dark web. What do you mean by that? Are the hackers not in their coding making the virus? Are that is that not happening? No. It may be from time to time that those who create um, the malware are also the ones that are um, hacking and infecting the law practice computer. But our understanding from interactions with IT security consultants is that the majority are criminal enterprises who use the dark web to buy effectively off-the-shelf products and implement them. Right, okay, and sometimes you don't know how bad that's going to be and sometimes you can't always decrypt it. What happens to the keys that you buy? Our IT security consultants will always share those keys with other uh, uh, what we call white hat hackers or security consultants. That's the good guys. The good guys. Okay so that if the same malware that has been purchased on the dark web um, is used in another hack where another firm of IT security consultants operate, no ransom needs to be paid. So you can just go and find the keys for free in various places if in, it's indeed. old malware? Indeed, and that's developing all the time. We had a very fortunate outcome to a recent significant hack on a law practice where whilst in the process of addressing the malware, um, the keys were discovered on a white hat uh, network and were, were simply acquired and the problem was solved. Okay, so you didn't have to deal with the criminals in that instance because the keys were available legally for free or for some small amount they, of money? They were sitting out on a website on the net uh, another entity, and we don't know whether the other entity had gone through the trouble of decrypting or whether they had paid for the ransomware and then decided to share them. Sure. Okay. So that there are a number of different ways in which ransomware attacks can be dealt with. 
um, what we see uh, coming as claims onto the professional indemnity policy are losses arising from the first thing you talked about, which was business email compromise. Uh, and so that's where money has either been paid out of the law practice as a result of a, a dodgy email or money that was supposed to come into the law practice has been paid somewhere else as a result of a dodgy email. So um, can you just... Uh, Talk about the experience of those kinds of cyber attacks on law firms. Sure. We see most commonly law practices reporting that there has been an intrusion into their network and our IT security consultants tell us that that is usually as a result of vulnerabilities in remote access. What does that mean? So we all like to be able to access our... PC externally or um, from home when we're traveling and we all have various ways of logging in, which we understand to be secure. Those ways of logging in are not always secure. There are various precautions which can be taken and we can talk a little bit about that later on. But once there is access to your email account remotely in the hands of a hacker, Various things can happen. If there are administrator rights, for example, uh, the hacker will have the ability to send emails from your email account uh, without leaving any trace. So they look like exactly like my emails. They are effectively they from are, me. They are from you. And those are much more difficult instances uh, to deal with than, for example, what we call email spoofing, which we've probably all come across where you get an email which has uh, an email address that looks similar to, for example, a client's or a service provider's email. But if you hover over their email, you see that it has all sorts of gobbledygook at the end. And, and it usually comes from uh, a external email provider. The client who receives an email once a hacker has access to your email system is your email. Mm -hmm. And it makes it much more likely that a client is going to react to that. Yeah. And so, but they won't sound like me. They won't, the email won't look like me. We are seeing an increasing sophistication on the part of hackers. Hackers will once they gain access to your email, spend days, weeks, and in one instance, months, reviewing emails, seeing who you communicate with, trying to copy your style, cutting and pasting emails that you have written to sound like you, to ensure that in their minds they can convince clients that the emails that are being received are from you. Mm -hmm. And that's where the expression, the other expression that we use in relation to these kinds of claims, social engineering comes from. It's about an attempt to engineer the hackers as uh, the real thing. And I'll, I'll give you an instance. I'm pleased to say this was not within the legal profession, but we dealt with a claim recently where the CEO of a significant investment management firm received an email on his phone which said that he had a voicemail message. 
he accessed that voicemail message, including putting in his credentials, his email and password, because he thought it was a legitimate email and he was expecting an urgent phone call. That proved to be the entry point into the system for the hackers. As CEO of the organization, he had administrator rights of all of his employees. The hackers had access to the entirety of the system. They could pose as any employee on uh, the emails of any employee on the system. And they watched the system for around four months. They learned, for example, who had authority to authorize transfers. Funds transfers. Funds transfers, indeed. And the day before most of Sydney left to go on our Christmas vacation, they the emails were used to supposedly authorize a third party provider to transfer around $5 million to offshore bank accounts. Merry Christmas. Indeed, Merry Christmas for the hackers and a very difficult time of year to respond. The hackers knew that. The hackers struck at just the right time. Unfortunately, that money was not recovered. Mm. And so they posed as the CEO or the CFO in that organisation? They posed as both the CEO and the CFO because both the CEO and CFO were required to authorise transactions. And having watched the email over months, the hackers knew that mm. and they knew the third-party external service provider that did the nitty-gritty administration of um, undertaking these transfers. And so once um, you understand that that has happened and you go in and have a look at the system, are you able to trace where those emails have come from and gone to? Where there are administrator rights and indeed where there is access to any email account, if you have control over that email account, you can delete and permanently delete any email you send. So we understand and what we have seen from investigation is that Hackers will know general office hours or the hours that people are asleep in Australia um, and they will either send emails of that time or, or if that becomes suspicious, what we also see is that they will put in rules. So they'll create the email but the email will only be sent at 8am or 9am. Mm. But then the sent box, well, one would normally expect to see all of this sitting in your sent box and you'd become alarmed but they're then deleted from the sent box. So, so was, there's no trace. Once you're operating in your email during the day, you see no trace of the emails that have been sent. Right. Well, that's a scary story. And we certainly at Lawcover have seen a number of cases not as big as that um, where uh, solicitors, particularly those in property or in um, wills and estates, have had their emails tampered with or have clients who've had their emails tampered with and they've seen... Um, an email come in saying, please don't put the money in that account, put it in this account. Um, what can solicitors do to, to stop that from happening? The most effective way is to get on the phone. Every, that's what we've been telling people. Good. Uh, that's certainly been our experience. And, and I'll add to that that we've also had one instance where a phone call was made, but unfortunately the phone call was made to the mobile phone number at the bottom of the hacker's email and the hacker was very convincing. 
on the phone as well as in the email. So check your file, check the numbers that are historically used uh, that have been acquired from your client at the first consultation, for example, mm -hmm. and use those phone numbers right. rather than phone numbers um, in the very email. So the other thing we've been telling people, and this is kind of a general message for the cyber claims generally, is um, slow down and be suspicious of things that you see. Um, don't try and do things in a rush. If there's money involved, particularly large sums of money, take the extra time to check the file for the right telephone number, make the telephone call, don't be so trusting, because I think people have fallen into a practice in the last 10 or 15 years of trusting what happens in email and email is not a particularly safe way of communicating. It's fine if you're just organising a meeting but if you're transferring funds it's not quite so safe. I very much agree with all of that. It is a case of returning to the way that perhaps we did things 10 or 15 years ago. Great advocate of, as you say, making that phone call, great advocate of following up once transfers have been made by phone to ensure that the recipient has received it. Now, clearly we don't want any monies to be transferred, but if for reasons beyond your control or beyond your awareness at the time funds have been transferred, the quicker that there is a response, the more likely it is that the funds will be recovered. Mm -hmm. There has been good success with the major Australian banks in clawing back funds, provided they are alerted uh, within the first, say, 12 to 24 hours. So that's been our experience too. We've actually seen the banks being able to get the money back. So where the solicitor has transferred money and then followed up with the client and the client says, no, I haven't received it, if you get straight onto the banks, then often the banks can stop that transaction from happening? Yes, that's that mirrors our experience. Okay. So those are two things you can do. One, make the telephone call. Two, follow up and make sure the money actually arrives. Um, what other top tips do you have for, for preventing cyber attacks from happening? Our experience is that human error and trusting what one sees on an email is the biggest vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So training and awareness to be suspicious of emails that come in is the most important frontline defence. The second is to have a trusted relationship with an IT provider and consultant who will help you to select antivirus software and keep that up to date. Mm -hmm. So technical fixes are important too? Technical fixes are absolutely important. We also strongly advocate that law practices have their own vulnerability testing. So how do you do that? You get in touch either through your IT service provider or through um, certainly we would be happy to um, provide referrals to panel IT service providers. Uh, they will um, conduct what is called penetration testing. So they will try to hack your system. Right. And by doing that, they will understand where it is that there are vulnerabilities and make recommendations as to how those vulnerabilities can be fixed. And it sounds like it's 
a very expensive, very sophisticated system. Actually, it's not. It can be done relatively inexpensively. And when one compares that cost to the cost and the inconvenience of a, a, a cyber event, uh, it is something that it's highly recommended. So this is basically someone trying all the doors and windows of your house to make sure they're all locked? Absolutely right. Okay. So those are a couple of um, excellent things that we can do to stop those kinds of um, attacks from happening. We also say it's a good idea to put in place a plan in case you do have something so that the day that this terrible thing happens to you isn't the first time you've thought about what do I do next. So putting together maybe a cyber response plan or um, the other thing that could be quite important is a privacy breach plan because much of the information in law firms is possibly private information of clients or sensitive information of clients and um, there are regulatory impacts around accidentally letting that information go out into the public. Correct. And the insurance policy that law covers purchased on behalf of its insureds provides cover for the regulatory investigations and remedies so that may be required. Okay. Correct. And part of the triage that we will do when you call the 1-800 breach line is an assessment of whether a report is required to the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner under the Privacy Act, mm-hmm. where there has been a breach of, as you say, private information. And that has been a step that has been taken on behalf of law practices in the last 18 months on a number of occasions. Okay. So um, if if a law practice has that happen, there is help available to to sort out those kinds of problems. Um, So I guess just to sum that up, Law practices need to make sure they've got their technical fixes right. They need to make sure all their defences are sorted out, that their windows are locked and their doors are locked. Um, They need to be vigilant about how uh, they deal with clients. Oh, one thing that we have seen people doing now is warning clients. We will never change our account details by email. We'll contact you if we're going to do that by letter. So we now often see that in email footers that that law firms have. 18 months ago, people weren't doing that. Yes. And it's a a really good illustration of how the profession has educated itself with the guidance from Law Cover to prevent these sorts of hacks happening. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I think the level of awareness and bringing a reasonable, diligent approach to what emails is going to be the first line of defence. Right. I should also mention at this um, point that we put in place this cyber policy 18 months ago and it has been renewed in June. So it is now going on for the next 12 months as well. So there is cover for law cover insureds in that time. But we would much rather people didn't have these incidents happening and didn't have to contact you um, if they're vigilant, if they're suspicious about emails that are coming and going, do things a bit more slowly, maybe just be careful about the way that the kind of information you exchange in email, make sure that's not your only method of communication with important clients or key stakeholders, the other side who might be sending you uh, trust account details, make sure that you call them and work out what's whether it's the right bank account. Agree. 
the concept of cyber breaches is often thought of as being this great undetected war going on around us uh, at a very high-tech level, but actually the solutions are often just common sense. Mm, okay, and at a, at a human level. Absolutely. Oh, just before I let you go, Keith, there's one thing I just wanted to go back to, ways in which you can prevent ransomware attacks. Um, we talked about technical um, defences you can have, but what other things are you, can you do to, to prevent the losses that arise from ransomware? I'll answer that both at a general and specific level. At a general level, there is a, much to be said about having a close relationship with a trusted IT um, service provider that can give you support across the entire suite of IT security defences. There is one very specific issue which I encourage law practices to bring to the attention of their IT service providers, and that is segregation of backups. You'll remember at the beginning we talked about the incident where the law practice was hit by ransomware and they had... To uh, pay the hackers. They had to pay the hackers and they had to pay the hackers for the sole reason that their backups were not readable. Mm -hmm. Why were the backups not readable? In that case, they were backing up to a corrupted server, mm -hmm. which is essentially a hardware issue that should be sorted out by an IT service provider. There are also cases that we have seen where there was no segregation between the backups and the live system. Right. So that the ransomware was able to be communicated in the course of the backups onto the backup server. So the even the backups had ransomware on them. Correct. And the same ransomware that was on the live servers. Right. So talk to your IT service provider about ensuring that there is that segregation. Do IT service providers also then test your backup to make sure that actually what when you come in on Monday morning and the system's locked, Friday's backup is going to be working? Absolutely. Uh, again, part of the whole suite of defences and backups are just as important as your front-end security. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by LawCover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.